0: Hello and welcome to The Crux, the weekly Women's Agenda podcast. On today's ep, Rihanna's unpaid labour, quietly quitting at home, and we speak with author Shereen Tadros. Thanks for listening. This is episode two of The Crux, recorded on the 15th of February. My name is Angela Priestley and I'm joined by my co-founder, Tyler Lambert. Hello, Tyler.
1: Hey Ange.
0: So quite a few things on the agenda today as always including a little later on I'll be sharing my interview with Shireen Tadros who is a former broadcast journalist and war correspondent who has written a memoir about her career, about war, what she witnessed and also about love and it is an incredible interview and I hope everyone will stick around and listen to the full thing. But first Let's start with a win for women. What is your win this week?
1: There have been a number of wins this week, but I won't be a win hog. I will (laughs) just take the one. And mine comes in the form of Harry Styles because I am apparently a 17-year-old girl. But I also think that he's done something really important this week. I mean, it's not groundbreaking, but it was necessary. So. Harry Styles took home quite a few of the Brit Awards and in his win of Best Artist, he actually acknowledged and dedicated the award to five female artists who were excluded from the category. So a little bit of context, um, it was the first year ever that the Brit Awards had dissolved the Best Artist prize into a gender-neutral prize, Mm. but that actually amounted (laughs) in Mm. there not being one woman in the category, which caused a lot of furor across social media, rightly so. And I think it's also kind of led to a broader discussion around what this means if awards programs start to do that more readily and and whether or not men are the ones that are kind of constructing this and, and deciding on who the nominees are. But, you know, Harry Styles said that he was very aware of his privilege in accepting the award that he dedicated for Rena, Charlie, Florence, Mabel and Becky, referring to Rena, Sawayama, Charlie, XE, X, Florence Welsh and Mabel and Becky Hill. And I just thought it was a really classy move from Harry. Well,
0: well done, Harry. (laughs) Could could I throw in the line that he said at the Grammys the week before, which was a little bit more problematic. And it may also have maybe contributed to the fact as to calling out the five female artists in the Brit Awards later on. But by the way, this isn't a win for It's kind of the opposite, but um, my take on it. I've got something different. But
1: You're going to hate on my Harry parade.
0: I'm not going to hate on your parade. I just, he said at the end of his acceptance speech for the Grammys when his album was named Album of the Year, he ended with the comment that this doesn't happen to people like me very often and so this is so nice, thank you, <laughs> of which you can imagine that there was quite a bit of uh, backlash, including one tweet, which I'll pull out here from Ungodly Wes, uh, who tweeted, this doesn't happen to people like me very often, in quotes, it literally only happens to people like you. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and no. Adele
0: uh, also wasn't so thrilled, apparently. Look,
1: so Harry Styles is yeah. a minority, okay? As a young he <laughs> heterosexual white male, he has very limited <laughs> opportunities. <laughs>
0: He's got some talent. He's got some good looks. Let's just, you know, it's really, really hard. Anyway, yeah, no, my win, quite different. I'll go to sports. So my win is, let's keep it with men, can be the men of the NRL. Kind of, this is just sort of coming out at the moment, so we're still learning a little bit more about this. But The NRL, the National Rugby League, and the Rugby League Players Association, looks like they have reached an agreement, an in-principle agreement on the key terms for the NRLW uh, collective bargaining agreement, and it covers policies relating to pregnancy and parental leave, incorporating support for pregnant players, uh, support for primary carers and parents of infants up to two years, allowance of private health insurance, opportunity for players to sign multi-year contracts and some further investments in supporting the uh, women's game. So why the men? It's obviously a credit to the women, but I I will note the men here because, and including the Players Association CEO, Clint Newton, who really appears to have fought hard for this. The male players have been showing some solidarity for the women. They've been threatening to delay the preseason kickoff. They've been threatening disruptions, you know, really trying to really push the league to come up with a women's deal. So the salaries, so that's always interesting. The NRLW salary cap rises from $350,000 to $900,000 in 2023 and then goes to $1.5 million by 2027. Now the minimum NRLW salary will be thirty thousand this year, and that will grow to fifty thousand in twenty twenty seven. So, yeah, still quite different to the Mau players. (laughs) I believe their salary caps are
1: more like twelve million. So, (laughs) probably not much avocado toast being bought for thirty thousand dollars a year. But I do think that that is a big part of the equation. Is you know, male players with the privilege, with the platform, getting behind these women, and we have seen that across different codes and throughout other sporting bodies. I think it's an important part of it. So, yes, exactly. So, our
0: wins, and no Rihanna and Super Bowl in sight amongst those wins, but uh, let's make <laughs> that the first story now. So. Uh, Rihanna, amazing performance at the Super Bowl. What were your thoughts on that, Tyler? Because obviously there has been a lot of commentary about the performance ever since. Trump even had a few things to say which weren't particularly nice and I don't think did him any favours, but uh, we've published a couple of pieces on it as well. But, Tyler, your comments. Very rare for Donald Trump to have
1: anything to say, isn't it?
0: Especially about a woman. Yeah, especially about a successful woman. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, look, I loved it. I thought it was so awesome. And look, I know that we're not meant to talk about the fact that she did come out and, you know, reveal her pregnancy during that. But I do think it was such an iconic moment. It was such a moment of power. And that's what I loved about it. Not the fact that we were finding out about her being pregnant, you know, who really cares about that. But I think that it was really Rihanna's opportunity to to kind of just be the absolute badass that she is and you know standing there on one of the biggest stages in the world she had taken a hiatus of seven years I think from her last big show so that's huge to then come back and be there suspended midair, wearing you know this amazing outfit belting out all of her biggest kind of songs and I love particularly that she she led with bitch better have my money which we will get into in a minute Mm. but I really loved it I thought she was an absolute superstar but Ange she didn't get paid
0: yeah she didn't get paid I was initially surprised at but then I know that they don't get paid for this because it's a massive (laughs) No. It's obviously the biggest world stage you can get in music and apparently you you do pretty well after doing a halftime performance and so she didn't get paid I mean obviously it speaks to the unpaid labor aspect which I might get you to talk to a little bit more as well but there is um there's certainly something in that of a woman up there just giving it everything. Um, She hadn't performed since 2016. Uh, We haven't seen much from her. She obviously has this, you know, epic generational hits that span over a decade and didn't get paid. What do you make of that?
1: (laughs) I mean, look, we did publish a story around it um, and I do, there was a little bit of outrage (laughs) on Facebook about the fact that we'd published a piece on that because it is, traditionally the way that that goes no one does get paid for it they get a certain amount of budget to pay for you know the production costs but there have been multiple acts throughout history who have put significant kind of funding into it themselves I think The weekend also chucked around seven million dollars into it but it does seem I don't know like kind of sitting in marketing I just believe that it would actually lead to that much more for Rihanna like she's so popular and the fact that she's potentially making this comeback after such a big period of time I know she was able to kind of make that comeback and be seen um, on that stage by millions of people globally but like really is she gonna be selling that much more because of it it did seem crazy to me that (laughs) She she wasn't getting remunerated for being out there heavily pregnant, suspended from the rooftop, and just being awesome.
0: I mean, I'm looking at the I think you pay what well, I saw a figure to get a 30-second ad spot during the Super Bowl. I believe it's around US $7 million. So... Rihanna had 13 minutes. So maybe, is that 26? I would think that she would reap a lot more than 26 million out of it. I I don't know. I don't know. I did see, um, and it's a worthwhile, it's a bit of a recommendation. Jennifer Lopez has a documentary from a few years back. And part of that documentary, I wish I had the name of it in it, but it does go through the process of organizing to perform at the Super Bowl. And you see, there is so much in it. It is absolutely huge. Everything in terms of the obviously the choreography, what you're going to do, what's songs you're going to perform, the rehearsals, the the getting there. She did a spectacular job as well. At that point, she was, and she makes this point in the documentary, she was sharing the time with Shakira. And it was sort of like, why should two women have to share the time at that point? And they really had to get it down to the second in terms of how much time they were going to have, because it wasn't, you know, you see these performances, you think it's all like, oh, it's a lovely combined performance, but no, people have their own interests as artists and as business people. So you don't necessarily want to be sharing your time. So
1: Rihanna doing it on her own. Yeah, I really loved what she spoke about after it as well and, and why, you know, her rationale and her reasoning for wanting to to be out there and to get back on the world stage in that way. And she talked about, you know, the importance of representation, being a mother, she, this is, you know, her pregnancy with her second child, but also, you know, representation as a Barbadian woman. And it really kind of resonated. I, I think it was uh, just an amazing way to kind of sum it all up.
0: Yeah. Okay, so we might go on to the next story, which I know has struck quite a big chord on social media and I know that quite a few people are out there talking about it at the moment and it's getting a few people thinking about possibly doing something similar. So it is a story uh, shared, it's experience shared by leadership coach Joe Bassett and she's published this piece with us on Women's Agenda Joe in this piece, has opened up about this idea of quietly quitting at work. And we've heard about this over the past year, the quiet quitters, this idea that you've got your foot sort of half out the metaphorical door and you're not really giving it your all, you've kind of quit and you're sort of sitting there uh, getting paid basically. So quietly quit. And she said that she's sort of taken the same approach at home where she recognized how disillusioned and resentful she'd become about the amount of unpaid labor she was contributing within her family and for minimal reward so she and i love this and i think that maybe people may follow her lead but she basically wrote a text message to her family saying that she'd had enough and she outlined the work that she had been contributing both paid and unpaid and the strain she was under she also notified them that she'd be taking time out from all that she was doing so she could reclaim some hours in her week to do the things that she wanted to do for herself. So yeah, the hours that she was taking out included refusing to pick up the groceries, refusing to ferry her kids back and forth from friends' houses and refusing to do the laundry. I might add, I don't think she has young kids. So, Tala, <laughs> what did you make of
1: it? Yeah, I would love to have refused to do laundry these days after two <laughs> bouts of gas in my household. That would have been really fun. Um, <laughs> No, look, I really do love this story from Jo. And I knew when she pitched it to us that it would resonate widely. And it absolutely did. If you go on our Facebook page, people are talking nonstop about it, about their own frustrations and the strains of the mental load, even sometimes within supportive partnerships. And I know, Ange, you and I talk about this quite a lot. And Mm. we both do have young families. We both run A business you know we have team members to support and work with and there's just a lot going on at any one time and I do find you know I (laughs) this is a, a slight kind of digress which my partner I'm sure will love but you know last week I was speaking to you about the fact that so many times and especially over the Christmas period I got told how lucky I was to have a partner who was helping with the kids who is a very hands-on father you know loves playing loves doing all of that and that is great i never want to define that as me being lucky like i work full time as well mm. and i carry just as much of the parenting load as he does and on top of that i carry a significantly larger mental load i would say And definitely a domestic load in managing, as Joe does, you know, managing most of the groceries, managing lots of the laundry, lots of the, Mm. you know, just general cleaning around the house that he would never really see. (laughs) And I know that paints him in a terrible light, which is probably (laughs) not fair, but I do think it's a real issue that a lot of women come up against, that they are often the ones to see the little things in their house that need to be done and mm-hmm. their partners don't and their kids don't and so they are picking up this this huge amount of unpaid work outside of often paid work and every other responsibility and role that you you have mm-hmm. so I thought that Joe's approach to this was very fair I don't know how feasible or sustainable it necessarily is um but I think her overall points were incredibly fair and i think that women stepping out and pushing back like this is a good first step of having people really recognize and reflect on what is being done it's important to do that so that we can start these conversations that these partnerships that we have and that we value because i do i really value my partner and i know that he's an empathetic human and a compassionate human who will ultimately try to kind of meet me halfway but is possibly just because of how he's been socialized, because of the world we live in, has Mm. a layer of privilege that I don't have.
0: Yeah, I've been going through this uh, myself. I mean, uh, my partner might say that he is actually the Joe in this situation. So let's hope that he doesn't quietly quit. But um It's tough trying to figure that out because we went through the idea of trying to, when we are at the moment, but trying to get them more involved in domestic tasks and making it really clear what they need to do day to day. Um, One thing I've noticed is how much investment needs to go into sort of teaching them all the skills, which will obviously you know, pay off. But I mean, I'm going through it with the six-year-old in terms of doing the laundry and sort of you show him and he quite likes it. Like just even, it's pretty basic, but taking the dirty clothes, putting them in the laundry machine, turning it on, going back and collecting them again. And he does enjoy it. But I notice that each day I do need to kind of take through the sequence of the events and my own. (laughs) patience starts to wear and the (laughs) perseverance the perseverance because I just think of this magical time when these children will be so self-sufficient and uh the tasks are actually being divided amongst uh, five of us as opposed to two of us as they mostly are at the moment so well done Joe. a
1: bit of quiet queen never went astray
0: exactly so I do want to go to the interview that we have this week. So a couple of weeks back, I spoke with former broadcast journalist for Sky News and Al Jazeera, Shireen Tadros, who, after growing up in what she describes as uh, in a as a quiet London home and having a quiet London life, she made the move into journalism, where her first major assignment saw her trapped inside a war zone in the Gaza Strip. She later covered the Arab uprising and was really conflicted by the idea of being trained to sort of tell the facts and remain neutral as a journalist while witnessing brutal state repression and hearing the stories of those impacted in war zones. So you hear all of that and you really start to learn a lot about her courage, how she made a career move, how she has the courage to do what she does, uh, the value of you know women as journalists in these really difficult situations as well. And she also goes into her personal story, which is weaved throughout her book, and it involves her fiancé leaving her on their wedding day. So obviously a huge, dramatic life event that put her on a completely different path and sort of switched up from the future that she had imagined she is now an advocacy so she left journalism and she is now the deputy director of advocacy and representatives to the united nations for amnesty international so let's cross to that interview now Thank you so much for joining me, Shireen, and for sharing more on your book, Taking Sides, which I highly recommend to all our listeners. And I've been extremely grateful to have a bit of an early read on. I guess my first question would just be to ask about, I guess, your daily work life, what it involves there. in I believe you are still in New York. What's a working day like for you with Amnesty.
2: Well, you know, just like in journalism, to be honest, there is no standard day of of an advocate at the United Nations. Some of our work is formulaic insofar as, you know, our ability to gather information on different things that are happening at the United Nations, taking part in negotiations to do with resolutions or texts that are going to, you know, be out into the world and, and voted on at some point. And then there's sort of more nuanced, kind of boring work that really is very important for the future. And that's a lot of it, making sure that things don't get worse. And I think that that in the field of women and girls is really important because I think what we're seeing now is a real attack on women and girls and not just the outward stuff we're seeing on on the news, like in Afghanistan or in Iran. But actually much more subtly in language, in texts of resolutions, where usually there would be a reference to vulnerable populations, including women, protection of children within conflicts. And then suddenly those things are going or you're setting up a mechanism to investigate a certain situation And you usually have a child rights expert in there, but then it goes to the budgetary committee here at the UN. And suddenly everyone's like, oh, do we really need a child rights expert on this mechanism? And that's where we jump in. And we're very attuned to that. So a lot of the work that we do is stopping things from getting worse and maintaining and holding a line.
1: Mm
0: it's difficult to hear that, it you know, we're at this point where we need to stop things getting worse. We want to think that we want to improve conditions, but here we are, we need to stop things getting worse. And I think there is that idea that when progress is made, you always think that the progress will just continue and it'll be sustained and things could never go backwards. And I think we learned that last year with Roe v. Wade being overturned. You kind of look at that, and I think many people would never have thought, obviously, that, that could get overturned and that those rights would merely get better for women. So I want to stop there because I'm thinking about how dictionary.com listed women as their word of the year. And they talked about the idea of women rising all over the world. And obviously um, they looked at Iran, they looked at women in Ukraine on the war front there, and they looked at Afghanistan as well. And it was sort of done in this inspirational, look at what's happening, these women are rising. But we're talking about things not getting worse. How do you, feel, do you feel optimistic when you see that? Do you feel inspired or what do you, what do you feel?
2: Yeah, but, you know, as you're speaking, I, co- I completely hear you. Um, and sometimes there's nothing worse than your hopes being dashed. It's almost better that they weren't there to begin with, right? But I think that a lot of this backlash that we're seeing is exactly that. It's a backlash against, you know, women's rights becoming the four. It's a backlash against these conversations. And it's actually a backlash against progress, so you know history is littered with this any you know advances in civil liberties be it for certain you know indigenous communities be it for women be it for children are almost always accompanied by some sort of regression or at least an attempt to regress those same rights by certain you know, areas and members of populations, countries, leaders, and so on. So I think that's what we're seeing. And, and we could focus on that. And you know, to be honest, in our work as human rights advocates, we kind of can't afford not to focus on that because we're trying to maintain this line. But I think a bigger picture look at it, from the outside is that there is an upwards trajectory here if only because we are talking about it more, if only because there is an outrage over what's going on in Afghanistan and what's going on in Iran, what's going on in in the U.S. over reproductive health uh, and abortion rights. And we're seeing those conversations live and visceral and emotional and real in a way we haven't before. So that's the bit that gives me hope but never take your foot off the gas. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you, I mean, being in journalism, uh, having had your career so much of a your career in, in media, uh, I'm sure you would know this, but there is that sense of being desensitized to things or tuning off things or seeing so much of things. And I think we saw that in Afghanistan. It's almost like, um, I think, you know, Ukraine, Russia, war, that sort of seemed to replace where we're talking about Afghanistan, um, Iran, something else will replace things. It's like we only have so much... Attention to
1: give.
0: Yeah. 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 So is that always a concern as well? That if the line can't be maintained there when it does get the global attention, that it loses the opportunity later on?
2: Right. I mean, I think we have to capitalize on certain moments, you know, and I think that with the Me Too movement, that was so clearly an important moment to, to capitalize on. But I think we also have to pay attention to those times when there's a lull in the coverage. And sort of keep bringing the conversation back. And that's why, you know, podcasts like this one are just so important because they focus on this issue, even when it's not an issue and it's not just sort of fashionable. So, you know, I think for those, you know, real advocates of women's rights and, and everything that goes around um, women's rights, um, this is a full time job and we use the opportunities when they come up. And when those opportunities aren't live, we still find ways around to bring it to the forum and, and make it relevant. Um, I think with women's rights, it's slightly different to when people have had enough of talking about Yemen or Afghanistan or, or Iraq. And I think we, we have a little bit more of a benefit that we always have a way in to discuss this. And there's always, unfortunately, something going on in the world which makes it a relevant discussion.
0: Mm. Do you, again, in journalism, but also in uh, your role now, and I, I saw that film that you did uh, with the documentary, that you, The War Around Us from 2012, where you are one of just two English language journalists to report from Gaza when it was attacked in late 2008. I mean, the first thing is, you know, why were there only two English language journalists working for English language outlets at that time? Where was, you know, the rest of the world? But I mean, some of what you saw, the horrors there and working those 19-hour days and collecting graphic footage and interviewing people who are suffering and just really obviously unimaginable horrors. And I mean, I know obviously a lot of people would ask you the first question of how you stay resilient, which I'd be interested to hear is one side of this. But the second part of that, how do you stay resilient and continue with the work when the rest of the world doesn't always listen? Mm-hmm. And even mm-hmm. if it does, it doesn't always care.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a real struggle. I mean, to your first point about, you know, what were we doing there and why weren't there others there? There's a logistical answer that it was during Christmas and a lot of the journalists that sort of went into, you know, lived in in Israel or in the West Bank and then go into Gaza to cover the Gaza Strip just weren't around because they were out on leave and on the holidays. But the, the larger point is that there were very few English language uh, journalists, you know, or, or journalists that reported for the major networks based in Gaza, because it's a really tough place to live. And sometimes it absolutely wasn't safe. And there had been a lot of kidnappings. Um, But also because I think there was a preference to living, you know, in the West Bank or in Tel Aviv. And a lot of the story was missed because of that, you know, because of that sort of parachute journalism that we often do, especially in television news. And that is increasingly becoming the trend as we cut down on foreign correspondents and we rely on flying them in when something happens. And we lose so much from the story. And in the case of Gaza in 2008, you lost the entire story for most networks because they just simply did not have someone inside of the Gaza Strip. So they relied on reporting from Israel and, and, and from that sort of border area. And that was, really, that was really sad to watch. I think for me about, you know, that was my first big story, my first actual time in a war zone, only my second time in Gaza. And the first time was like for a few hours I was very much a rookie. I didn't, you know, ever really think that I was going to be killed in a war zone. That seemed an impossibility. I was in my 20s. But I I absolutely wasn't fearless. I absolutely wasn't. I cried every single day of the war. I broke down a lot of times while I was recording things. Once actually while I was doing a live shot on on, on the roof. um, You could see it in my face. Uh, People were commenting on, you know, is, is she Okay. And when I came out, there was a lot of backlash against, you know, my lack of uh, bravery and the fact that, OK, you know, she survived this war. But, you know, this isn't the face of a war correspondent. You know, she was so young. She looks so young. You know, I, I really struggled with that. And I think that it really affected me at the time um, to be sort of seen as not part of this, you know, elite club of journalists that are just so tough and and macho and But I think, you know, I hope that as more female journalists came to cover wars, you know, after me as well, that that has changed. And they have proven that it was it's never about being fearless. It's about being determined. And it's about having the true intention to cover a story because you believe in what you're doing and not because you want to be famous. And I think, you know, if we hold true as journalists to those true intentions, we will do the story justice. But it's, it's a really difficult job. And nobody should think that journalists have some sort of superpower that's different to other people in terms of their ability to absorb that kind of suffering and for it not to penetrate. Mm.
0: As a a female war correspondent, I guess I can understand what you're saying there in terms of you might have this picture of what a war correspondent looks like. I certainly do. That is probably changed now to what it was when I would have watched such correspondents on the news as a child. Uh, What does a female war correspondent bring that would be different? And I might ask, I guess, um, particularly thinking about women and children and bringing their stories.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember um, a, a female war correspondent friend of mine talking about how she was interviewing a mother and then she realized that behind her, there were these, um, you know, all of these sort of really dirty cloths that were hanging behind. And she sort of asked her, you know, what, what are those? And she realized that this, this mother had no diapers, no access to clean underwear for her children. And I think there are certain things that women, and it's, you know, and, and often mothers as well, are sort of looking out for and can really bring out but i you know it's not a universal thing because i think it's also dangerous to sort of put us all in the same category like you know like we will all notice these things i think more than anything it brings a different perspective to the male perspective and that could mean different things it can often mean sort of a a focus on more vulnerability Uh, more emotion sometimes, our feeling that we can be more free to talk about that kind of suffering. And, you know, sometimes it's just access. It's the fact that, uh, you know, another woman will let us into their home and speak to us in a way that might be very difficult for a male correspondent to do.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering if, I mean, we've touched on courage, I guess, and you mentioned that people noted that you weren't brave enough because you showed a human face to what was going on, I guess, when there was obviously some fear in where you were reporting. I obviously see you as a particularly, a very extremely courageous person, uh, not just in terms of reporting on human rights, but defending human rights and also making really big career changes all over the world and moving to different locations all over the world, which, which in itself takes a lot of courage but I think for our listeners it might be useful to also learn a little bit more about your background because you mentioned being in your 20s but I know that I mean you it's you were still at home I think into your mid-20s you had a very close family life is that correct could you maybe talk through some of that because it does make the leap even even more significant I guess yeah
2: that's so true um I was born in London. My parents are Egyptian, and I lived in this really beautiful house that you know my parents had. And I was when I was born in 1980, they already had this house. So for 26 years, I lived in the exact same neighborhood and exact same house. Um, I went to sort of school and church on Sundays, and it was all within you know sort of maybe a five mile radius. And although you know we went back as a family to Egypt, and we traveled a lot during our holidays and so on. I lived a pretty sheltered life. And my parents were quite conservative, I didn't, I wasn't allowed to sleep out. So I'd never slept a night away from my parents. And yeah, I mean, my my life really consisted of, you know, schoolwork and university work, I was, you know, just starting in journalism, but again, just, you know, really sort of dipping my toe into it. And in a way, you know, this, you know, the Gaza war was just a complete break from all of that. And there was, you know, again, this this wasn't the stereotypical story of someone who had had grown up in different homes and was used to moving from one place. I wasn't used to moving at all. I wasn't even used to leaving my parents. (laughs) I think what drove me, though, was a sense of real injustice and inequality that I saw around me growing up and uh, a want to address that through my work. And when I was in Gaza, and we were stuck in there, and there was no choice but to report, it became just, you know, a mission for me. And there was no other option, there was no option to stay at home. But I was afraid. And this was completely new territory. And I think part of it was naivety of, of, you know, not not really believing I was there. But I I felt a sense of huge responsibility to report the story and and to report it well and to make people feel Because, you know, how do you make someone sitting in Sydney who's never been to the Middle East, how do you make them understand what it's like to live under occupation and siege in in the Gaza Strip and be bombarded? And trying to find those points of connection was really important. And I think, think you know, as far as I was able to do it, I was able to do it because I was thinking about my own family, my own community in the UK, and how would I make it resonate for them?
0: And beyond your... Journalism career, which you know included anchoring for Sky News and Al Jazeera English, and obviously a huge way from where you describe, I think, that first newsroom where you were in, where they went, put makeup and said that you were gonna sit in the background and had to look like you were busy doing <laughs> reporting work. But I guess can you explain why? And you do go into this a lot, obviously in the book, but why you then made that move to activism?
2: Yeah, I think I'd say that at my core, I was always an activist, and that I, like so many other people, went into my work thinking that I want to play a part in changing things, in changing the world. And at that point, what was more accessible to me and what made sense to me was through exposing injustice and reporting on it. And I think somewhere along the way, as I kept doing that for a decade and realizing that there was something quite unfulfilling about my work I realized that although reporting is such an important, vital part of making change and an impact in the world, that was not where the place of the chain that I wanted to be. And that I wanted it to be my job to impact policy and for, you know, suffering to be addressed. Um, And I think it was near the end of my career when I was covering Yemen. And particularly where I was, you know, covering a certain story about um, this young girl and the young girl came to see me just before I left Yemen to say thank you to me for, you know, the reporting on her story. And she got very emotional. And and her father said to her, don't get emotional. She's going to go and tell your story to the world. And then on the way back, I got a call from my editor saying, we need to get you to northern Iraq. Something just happened. And I was like, well, what about my Yemen story? And they're like, we'll do it later or... And it seemed like it's you know I'm not going to make it. And I and I suddenly realized that you know as a journalist you just can't control these things. It's not really your <laughs> it's not really your mandate to make sure something happens to you know to this girl that she is there's some justice or accountability there. And that just wasn't enough for me. It wasn't fulfilling. And um, I think as a journalist you need to stay true to what you are there to do. And if you start to really expect to that your reporting is going to make change, you will be perpetually disappointed and disillusioned. So I realized for me, I needed to move to a different link in the chain. Um, and I wanted it to be my job to make sure that that girl in Yemen has some sort of, you know, justice at the end of this, that, you know, that my job every morning is to work on that and, you know, to follow up on it rather than, you know, just tell stories. Mm.
0: There's a personal thread throughout the book. And, I mean, you you mentioned changing the world. The line on your book is a memoir about love, war and changing the world. Uh, So I'd like to ask about the love element. But um, the personal chain, which obviously comes in immediately and you learn more about throughout the book and is quite a difficult personal story, is a very difficult personal story, Can I ask what you might want to share on that here, but also why you wanted to thread that throughout your memoir?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the story is that I fell in love with a fellow journalist. I was with him for many years. And then just as, you know, we were going to sign our marriage papers, we were getting married, he decides to leave me on that day. And it completely, you know, breaks me in a way that I didn't know was possible if it wasn't some sort of cataclysmic, you know, a, you know event that happens in the world, like an earthquake or a war. And it was a huge moment in, in my life. And in a way, though, when he left me and I and I suddenly had nowhere to live and I just quit my job so that we could move in together and move to the U.S. and so on, and everything started falling, sort of crumbling down around me it sort of freed me. And I thought, you know, no one expects me to stay in journalism anymore. They actually are just hoping that I don't have some sort of nervous breakdown. Um, And so I was able to actually think, what is it that I really want to do? What do I really, really want to do? And it was it was so clear to me. I mean, even like, you know, literally from the next day after he left me, it was so clear to me that I I wanted to be a human rights activist and I and I wanted to work for an organization whose role it is to address injustice and inequality. And so I, I tell the personal story. One is a story, I guess, of resilience and how, you know, again, we are not immune. Uh, those of us who are on TV and are anchors and we are not immune to this kind of rejection and pain. But also how I think hopefully this resonates with many people, that kind of heartbreak can also be a turning point in your life and an opportunity to look at what you really want to do.
0: Mm, That's excellent. Thank you so much for sharing that. And obviously, it just brings so much as well to the book to hear that side of it and also I think you know to hear you honestly note that you know maybe your life didn't necessarily turn out in the way that you may have expected as a younger person you mentioned about you know maybe you're being married having three kids and things like that and it didn't happen that way and it doesn't have to happen that way and there's been all these other opportunities and particularly the opportunity to do this incredible game-changing work to close up I thought that maybe just given you are obviously briefed so well on what's going on and, like I say, you know, a lot of readers and I think about our publication as well, we cover a huge amount of things, definitely not only about human rights internationally and international stories, but to hear your perspective, is there an area for women and girls that you were feeling particularly just needs a little bit more attention that is maybe not some of the more obvious or top five ones that we're often talking about, but a key area that you think just you'd like more of us to know about here in Australia? Well,
2: one thing that I've I've really sort of started to feel very passionately about and, and sort of go and, and, and speak about around the world is women's rights in terms of um, giving us choices and empowering us. I think that a lot of times I get these emails, I'm sure you get them too. You know, we have this panel discussion or we have this conference, we really need a woman. Um, could you please join us? And the people writing to you really think that they're like they're feminists for saying that to you. We want a woman's voice. And I've been trying to sort of change that perspective of what women's rights and sort of respecting women's space actually means. And that can even sort of think about that in a corporate way. So when companies, you know, sort of change their policies to be more female friendly, what do they do? And they talk about gender parity. They talk about hiring 50% women. But do they talk about maternity and paternity pay? Do they talk about, you know, access to services, be it egg freezing or be it, you know, um, whatever it is that that maybe speaks to a woman's needs more? I mean, 99% of the time, no. And so I think that there's so much rhetoric about being sort of more female friendly. And, and it's, it's almost fashionable But how many people actually do the work and thinking to really make jobs more accessible to women and girls. And I think that I've, you know, sort of beyond the conflicts that we look at, um, the protests taking place, the attack on sexual and reproductive health, abortion rights, and so on. I do think at its core, we really need to look in more depth at what it really means to bring opportunities for women and to see gender in this kind of lens rather than simply as you know, 50% this and the presence of a physical female at your conference.
0: Yeah. And as I think, you know, we definitely see in Australia across many industries, particularly in STEM, it's one thing to try and get women and girls into STEM careers, but we are seeing the drop off around the five, 10 year mark of women leaving STEM careers. So it's that same thing. It's what what's going, like the clearly the policy, things in place are not being supportive to what those women need at that time, and so they are looking elsewhere. So, I think that does um, speak to that, and it's you know it is good to link those things here. I think, in Australia and particularly for people in our audience who might have some control over their organisation's HR policy or something. And it, and then that's a piece that they can think about in terms of where they might be able to help change the world and exactly. the run-on impacts internationally also.
2: Absolutely. I completely agree with you there. That That is what a human rights perspective and a women's rights perspective is. And you don't need to work for Amnesty International. You don't need to go to the UN but just as you say, if you are working um in an HR section of, of, of a private company, you have an opportunity to change people's lives. So so take it. Don't be a bystander. Mm.
0: All right, well, thank you so much for joining me and uh, thank you so much for the book. Congratulations on the book and congratulations on your amazing career and can't wait to hear more from you as well in terms of sharing this book on maybe various panels as well, you'll be invited on, but hopefully not merely because they need a female perspective. (laughs) Thank you.
2: Thank you, Angela. This has been wonderful. Thanks.
0: So thank you to Shireen for the interview. There is so much there and please go and read her book. It is called Taking Sides, a memoir about love, war and changing the world. So that's pretty much it for the podcast this week. But Tala, what is on your agenda for the next week?
1: Yeah, I think just having listened to that interview of yours, Anja, you know, it's probably not for the next week, but it just struck me that some of the developments that have happened in Australian politics this week are really meaningful as well and I just wanted to quickly touch on you know quite a big story of the resettlement of those 20,000 refugees in Australia and their ability to Mm. now be granted permanent residency after years in limbo and so for anyone who wasn't following the government announced that this week that it will provide permanent visa pathway for those currently on temporary protection visas and safe haven enterprise visas, who entered Australia prior to the Operation Sovereign Borders policy being enacted in 2013. And, you know, the Minister for Immigration, Andrew Giles, makes no sense economically or socially to keep them in limbo. These are people that have been in limbo for about a decade. And I think it just means so much for these families and their ability to rebuild their lives after a decade in no man's land. And what are your thoughts?
0: Uh, that's definitely on my agenda. And also thinking about those who aren't specifically legally covered by that, it's really complicated. And I don't feel qualified to actually say much about that at the moment. But I'm referring to a story that was actually on 730 just last mm-hmm. night of people who sort of narrowly miss out. It just It's just so hard. It's, you know, why certain people get it and then certain people didn't according to the day that they arrived but um, we might look into that over the next week as well. Uh, I did want to quickly note and it does obviously follow the interview and it is definitely on my mind and it is actually really difficult to talk about but um, it is the earthquake in Turkey and Syria and the death toll there which has already passed well over 40,000 and the UN expects that figure will double. Um, There are hundreds of thousands of people left homeless We're seeing a few miracle rescues and that'll get the headlines. And of course, that is wonderful that we can find that, you know, there's possible still signs of hope and that there can be people who are still being rescued. I know in the past 24 hours there have been, but the situation is really bleak. It goes beyond that immediate disaster and loss of life. You know, this earthquake crosses into rebel-held territory in Syria, it's been really difficult to open up supply lines and the negotiations that have had to go into that. It's freezing conditions. There's a lack of tents. There's a lack of sanitary items for women and girls. We also know the added risks that women and girls do face in those post-disaster situations and being in this sort of environment. And most of the reporting, what we're seeing is from the Turkey side, which is you know obviously horrific enough. I don't think that we've heard enough from Syria and I think we're about to learn a lot more and it's really difficult and it's pretty horrible and it's definitely on our mind and Tyler I know that uh, you've been working on a story Jesse that we're likely to publish tomorrow
1: Mm -hmm. yeah we've been talking to a family affected in uh, well they're in Australia but their families are in Turkey, so um, we'll have that piece out and we're also interviewing the CEO of UNHCR so um, look out for that on on Friday and we'll also have a whole list of charities that you can get behind to donate to 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 support these people throughout such a horrific atrocity. So um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, that's it for the podcast this week. So thank you for listening to The Crux. Thank you to uh, Shireen for the interview and to Alison Ho, our producer for Pulling It All Together. You can check in on all the stories that we've covered, including a write-up from this week's interview on Women's Agenda. The Crux is produced by Agenda Media, publisher of Women's Agenda, an independent daily news publication.